everybody and welcome to another episode of laws and grace i'm laws i'm grace and today we're here with jenna carson so excited that we have Jenna on our podcast today. Jenna is a chaplain who got her degree at Harvard Divinity School. She opened the door for women in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to serve as military chaplains and also teaches therapeutic yoga. Um, I think Jenna is such a cool person because she is like a pioneer in her field. She is super smart. I don't want to hype you up too much, but she's super smart and she always like posts inspirational things and shares inspirational things and she served in hospitals and prisons and just has so many experiences um in a relatively short career I feel like you've had a lot of experiences as a spiritual leader as a teacher um and more so I'm excited to talk to you thanks I'm so excited to be here um so I think we need to start by explaining what a chaplain is and what a chaplain does because I think some people might not have experience with that specific title of um, spiritual leader yes can I start with a story of course I feel like stories are a good way to start um so when I did my first chaplaincy internship in a hospital during divinity school I became aware of a man who was on life support and nonverbal. Um, he, he was not able to communicate and the nurses were wonderful and caring for him, but he had absolutely no family, nobody, nobody who would come and visit him. And a nurse said to me one day, she said, he's, he's trying to die, but, um, he's not able to let go. And she asked me if I could see him. And I said, absolutely. And so I went and sat with him and held his hand, which you know, you wonder when, when someone can't communicate, you, you have to um, try things that you don't know whether it's a positive or a negative experience for that person. But I just felt kind of guided to take his hand in mine and talk to him. And so I just would sit in the room and talk with him and just try to show him that he was seen by another human being. And I don't know if he heard me. I don't know if he realized I was there. The nurse thought that he did. And um, as I would go and visit him over the next few weeks, he started uh, responding a little bit with some movements. And so I do, I do think he realized that I was there. And um, he was taken care of by the state and we were really waiting for the attorney to give the green light to, to let go of the life support and let this man pass away. And so when the day came for that to happen, I sat in the room with him and held his hand as, as he passed. And it was, it was very emotional for me as a, as a new chaplain. I was, I was crying a lot and uh, just feeling this momentous, occasion of, of him passing from one world into another and it was special and it was also sad and, and the reason it was so sad for me is I realized that so many people in this country and in this world die alone and I don't think anyone should have to ever die alone um, 
And so it, it was my privilege as a chaplain to, to be with somebody in his last moments so that he wasn't alone. And I, I just think that's a great story of what chaplains do because we get to see people and acknowledge their dignity and humanity and, and literally sit with them and hold space and bear witness to their experiences. And I, I think that work is so sacred. And so that's one thing that chaplains do in hospitals, sit with the dying. I have a friend, um, Tammy, who's also a chaplain and she sometimes even sits in the room after the person passes, just, just to continue to be there. And she, she feels that that moment can be spiritual too. And so sometimes she'll just sit with the body and kind of hold this vigil until um, the body is removed from the hospital. Um, another thing hospital chaplains do is work with family members of those who are sick and dying and help kind of be a, a bridge between the medical professionals and uh, the family, kind of translate some things that are going on, help make things clear. Um, we do spiritual counseling. Uh, we meet with, we try to meet with as many new patients as we can and do what's called a spiritual intake and just get to know who they are and what their needs are and what their spirituality is and what they might need while in the hospital. Um, other forms of chaplaincy are prison and there's um, academic chaplaincy like at a university setting or even in some high schools, you'll have a chaplain who teaches religion courses and also provides spiritual counseling. Uh, there's chaplains in the military, there's hospice chaplains. And so every place that a chaplain works will have its own unique needs. Um, one of my favorite forms of chaplaincy is prison chaplaincy. And one of the things that was so cool about that is that as the chaplain, I was considered a Protestant chaplain. And so I actually got to preach and lead Sunday services. And so I had my congregation, I was teaching a Bible class. And then I also brought my therapeutic yoga skills in and taught a meditation class. And that was so fun and enriching for me as well as, as the students. And really we, in, in these um, prisons and military settings, you wanna make sure that people's constitutional right to practice their religion is upheld. And so that's another thing is there's a lot of organizing services and making sure people have religious rights and ceremonies and even supplies that they might need. So that's kind of an overview of some different forms of chaplaincy. What made you wanna go into that? It was a grace thing. I, I had started divinity school thinking I would either go on to law school and be an immigration attorney or um, go on and get a PhD. And I very early on <laughs> discovered chaplaincy in that first semester of a three-year um, program. Actually, I was in a two-year program, which was theological studies. But as soon as I discovered chaplaincy, I switched to the degree that's needed to become a chaplain, which is the three-year master of divinity. Um, I was drawn to it because I realized that 
this was a profession that combined everything I love to do. Like I love to be with people. I love to hear their stories. I love spirituality and faith and religion. I like to help people feel seen and heard. And I feel that that interaction enriches me as much, if not more than the person with whom I'm working. And so I just had this kind of aha moment when I learned what the profession is, where I thought I have to go for this. And I wasn't yet sure about it, but after that internship where I, I told you the story of sitting with a man who was dying, I, the nurse, the nurse said to me one day after I left this man's room, she said, you picked the right profession. And that meant a lot. And I, I did kind of feel in my heart that this was my path. So in addition to the degree, you need like an endorsement, right? Yes. Yes. So each church or organization, um, has to provide an endorsement in order for you to operate as a minister or chaplain. So I had to seek endorsement from my church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And <laughs> I started, I, I was drawn to military chaplaincy, actually, which is um, kind of surprising, but I, I felt drawn to it so much. And so I started seeking that. And I was informed that women could not do that, but my church did endorse me to be a hospital chaplain and then later on to work as a prison chaplain. So are there any other requirements besides that? It depends on where you're serving. So usually the master of divinity is the first step, but What's common now is that if you want to be a full-time chaplain, you have to have what's called clinical pastoral education, which is um, basically a series. It consists of a series of internships that you do where you uh, have an educator who's helping you and you do homework and then you also do the actual chaplaincy. And so it's, it's definitely important to do some of that. So it's not like something that you could just like, oh, I think I want to go volunteer and do this. <laughs> it's a pretty intense process. Usually, however, there are there are some hospice facilities that will take you on without all the requirements. It's just the field is becoming more and more professionalized and regulated. So it's I think it's just getting harder and harder to find places like that so you were the first um okay I always forget specifically what first you were but you tell us about that process of like paving a new path for again women LDS chaplains it was a journey it took years and really what was interesting to me is I I kept trying to let go of of the dream the dream I was to serve as an Air Force chaplain and I kept um, asking and being told no. And then I would kind of let that sit, let that information sit. But then I really felt like God was bringing the question back to me. And it just felt like this very strong 
urgency to press, but then I would also feel after instances of pressing that I needed to kind of back off. And so it was really this, um, this kind of dance of what I would call revelatory experience of seeking God's will and seeking to know how to move forward and when to pursue other paths. And so over the series, over the course of, of um, five or six years, I was kind of working on that. And basically um, that culminated in, in writing a letter to President Nelson. And I had known that a letter was likely in my future, but I also really tried not to, to push too hard in myself, this is hard to articulate, but I, I was trying to listen for this, this spiritual guidance from, from the spirit. And it was interesting because one morning I woke up and it was so clear that it was time to write the letter. And when it came to write the letter, it just, it flowed. It was such a quick process. I mean, the words just poured out of me and I felt like they were from God um, or God was helping me form the words. And so that was a cool experience to feel guided in knowing how to ask and what to say to the, the leader of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it, it, the process took some time after that because another policy that had been in place was that um, our, my church wanted married military chaplains. And at that time I was divorced. And so that, <laughs> it took a little more time to work through and to ask and more waiting. And long story short, I, I did finally receive endorsement for active duty Air Force chaplaincy um, early this year, or no, it was actually late last year. And so I'm currently working with a recruiter. But I think what I learned from that experience is to listen and to try to work out of humility and not ego. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not a long answer. <laughs> I think that's great that you didn't give up. I mean, that's like the classic story of someone following their dreams, right? Like they're setback, they're setback. But if you really feel like it's your calling, you keep trying, right? Yeah, yeah. I really like how you said you were, you know, doing it out of humility rather than ego, because I think it's so, especially with such topics that you're passionate about or have directly impacted you so deeply. It's like, it's so hard not to be like, look, I can do this. And, you know, you should just change everything or whatever, but truly being methodical and thoughtful and prayerful about it. And I'm so happy that it worked out, you know, for it to to move forward and paving the way for other people. I think that's awesome, Jenna. Thank you. I, I'm so excited. I'm friends with a group. I believe there are six of us, six women who are working toward this goal of becoming military chaplains. And I'm just so excited for these sisters. And, you know, I, as I meet people who have an interest in chaplaincy, often they'll say things like, you know, I, I really think women need to be serving. We need more military chaplains who are women. And I've talked to a couple of people in the military who said, oh, I wish, I wish years ago I could have had a female chaplain. And so I'm just, I'm thrilled that there will be more of us in the military in general. And then of course that members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints 
who are women who are called to this can do it. <laughs> um, do you know the percentage of women to men chaplains? In the military or, or in the, just in general? Um, both. That's such a good question. I don't know. Um, I know there are quite a few women chaplains in hospital and hospice, mm -hmm. but much fewer in prisons, especially in federal prisons. And, you know, I don't know what it's like in the military. I know it's still a minority, but. Yeah, definitely a minority. Um, yeah, since you brought it up, what is it like being, because you were a chaplain in a federal high security men's prison. Yes. Tell us, I mean, a little bit about what that was like. <laughs> I know there's a lot. Yeah, it was wild and fun and an adventure and I loved it. It was an incredible learning experience and I, I miss that ministry. I miss it. My heart aches missing it. Um, there were there were challenges. One of the challenges is that the incarcerated men um, are already in a vulnerable state. There are lots of reasons that the um, their situation is vulnerable. But then you add on um, deprivation of contact with with women. Um, so when you have a a lot of heterosexual men who are deprived of emotional, physical, and spiritual connection with with a romantic partner, you, uh, you get more vulnerability. And so as a woman, I, I had to be very careful about how I carried myself and boundaries and um, trying to minister and at the same time have very, very clear separation of self from the people with whom I worked. And then there was the physical safety aspect of constantly scanning my surroundings and being highly aware of crowds of, of men around me. And, um, and just, it, it, can, it can take a toll knowing that you become a sex object. And so psychologically, I think it can be very difficult for, for women in such settings. And that would go for other officers, not just the chaplain. Did you, because when you were in that prison, you had like a counterpart who was a male chaplain, correct? Yeah. Yeah. A colleague uh, who I love dearly. Um, it was so funny because we started at this prison at the same time. And so we were training at the same time. And he's close to my age. So kind of, um, we, we have different backgrounds, but, but we were kind of starting off in a similar position and just, it was, I'm laughing because some days I just realized how carefree he could be in comparison to me. And one time, well, this, I feel like this happened a few times, but one time we were walking, we were leaving our office and we were going through the compound of the prison and in the compound, there's what's called the yard, which is uh, where the prisoner's uh, gather to have rec time outside and so oftentimes when my colleague and I would be walking past the yard um, incarcerated men would be kind of shouting like hey chap hey chaplain you know I got a question and um, I had to be really careful because sometimes 
it wasn't really that they had a question or actually wanted to talk to the chaplain. It was that they wanted to hold up a female staff member, which uh, happens a lot. And so my colleague and I were walking and he stopped along the fence to talk to the incarcerated men. And I just kept walking. And later he caught up with me and he said, oh, you must really want to get home soon. And I said, no, no, it's, it's not that. It's that every time I'm up against that fence talking to somebody, I'm thinking about 10 things at once. I'm thinking about what the person's saying to me, what his friends are doing around him, what they're saying, what they're doing, what the men behind me in the housing units are doing, um, where the closest officers are, um, what underlying motives might be going on in this conversation. And I, I'm scanning my surroundings and my colleague just looked at me and he was like, oh, I would hate being a woman here. I couldn't do it. That sucks. And I, I just laughed. I was like, there's a lot to think about. That feels like because, you know, a lot of things were similar about you and him, age and other things. It seems like you could really see the contrast. Like it wasn't because... He was more experienced or any of these things are literally just the difference between being a man and being a woman. But do you feel like you had some advantages being a woman? Yeah, yeah. Um, again, similar experiences with this colleague where if um, one of us had to do something difficult, sometimes it was better to send me to, to handle it because sometimes the men were a lot more respectful of me. And so one time, um, there was an incarcerated man who had been, he had been disrespectful, not, not of me, but just in the chapel he had been doing and saying things that he, that weren't appropriate in that space. And so I actually just went to approach him and I said, go back to your housing unit. And <laughs> he stood right up. Well, he said, go back to my housing unit. And I said, yes. And he stood up and, and he followed my orders. I escorted him out and he went back and he never gave me a hard time. And I went back to my office and my colleague said, oh, that went so much better with you than it would have gone with me. And there were kind of similar experiences where male colleagues would say, yeah, the, the men are gonna take this better from you than they would from me. Another thing that was interesting is um, one time, one of the incarcerated men said to me, he said, you're the most dangerous person here. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, do you know why? And I said, no, you know, and I, I was kind of rolling my eyes. Like, what, what is he talking about? And he said, it's because when we look at you, we see our mother, our sister, our wife, our daughter. and." I, that just, that had me pausing and thinking that's powerful and surely not everyone saw me that way, but I think some of the men did. What's it like, um, obviously you come from, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints background, but you're dealing with lots of different people with different, you know, beliefs and things like that. How do you navigate that? Yeah. Well, I love it so much. I'm so passionate about interfaith dialogue and pluralism. And I just feel like it's a privilege to be around people who share a diversity of faith and culture and religion. 
so I just see it as very expansive. I'm able to, to learn and grow as a person as I learn from these people that I get to interact with. Um, sometimes there's a difficulty in that there is a real bias I've seen against members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And of course, we, we see this really in any religion, um, but there's certain things in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ that, that cause a lot of bias, understandably so. So I actually try not to advertise my religion. When people ask me, I, I tell them, but I don't walk in and announce my denomination because I really want us to be able to connect on a human level without having the labels and the biases up front. What's like the day-to-day -day, like in the prison? Like, do you meet with people one-on-one? -on -one? Like what kind of things do people come to you for? Mm, that's a really good question. Well, there's a lot of variety and this will depend on the, the prison. Um, where I was working, day to day looked different. One thing we did as chaplains is we would do rounds in housing units when um, things were locked down because of COVID. And we would round in a unit where people were held um, either for protective custody or um, behaviors that they had done that they shouldn't have. And so, um, it was interesting because in those moments I'd be going from cell to cell and just standing outside a cell door, outside the window and, and just communicating to the individual through that door. And a lot of times people want you to pray. They want um, to hear God's word. They sometimes would say, what's the scripture of the day? <laughs> or chap, what's good? What can you tell me? I, I, it's funny. Um, I never had this in the hospital, but in the prison, I was called Chap, Chappy. Um, somebody called me Madam Chaplain, uh, <laughs> but it's just kind of fun. And that was staff too, not just the incarcerated. But so it'd be like, Chap, what's what's good? Uh, what news do you have for me? Um, and then as far as personal counseling, like if someone came to my office, that was that was more rare. And I think that was, because um, in that particular facility, it, there wasn't really a culture of incarcerated men approaching the chaplain and asking for a one-on-one. A -on -one. And especially as a woman, I think um, the men wanted to be cautious with that. But I would find myself doing individual spiritual counseling after the death of a loved one um, or when somebody was on suicide watch, which... Um, was was some I was really mindful of of anyone on suicide watch. Um, I had a few men who who would say how heartbreaking and hard it was to break addiction, and so um, they were just really real with me about like the challenges of breaking their addictions because those addictions follow them into the prison; they don't just disappear. Um, Sometimes after or before a sermon, I would have people approaching with theological questions. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, I think it's just, um, I think the idea of, you know, someone looking for faith when they're, I mean, I have never been in prison, but it to I think the stereotype of prison is that it's like a hopeless, scary, you know, all these negative words kind mm -hmm. of place. And so it's an interesting juxtaposition to be, you know, somebody bringing hope and spiritual guidance in that place. Yeah, there, there's, there was a real darkness. And I, I personally believe that like our, our actions and thoughts even produce an energy. Um, and so I, I could feel that, but there were also moments of light and particularly in Sunday services, I remember um, a couple of times or maybe a few, several times feeling extremely touched by what an incarcerated man would share. I would see the men trying to lift each other and minister to each other. And you see in, in some cases, great humility because I think the circumstance is humiliating and humbling if you allow it to be humbling. And um, there were men who were, were humbled. And my colleague said something that was really interesting that I, I love. He said, never in any other ministry are you gonna see people um, in general just so humble and so needing help. Like everyone there needs so much help. And you certainly see that in other hospital and hospice and military settings, but just the sheer number of incarcerated people in that space together gives a lot of opportunity for growth. How do you think um, faith in general and just spiritual, you know, spiritual meetings and different things can help people when they're in a dark place, whether it is a prison or a hospital? I think faith that you're being held by a higher power has the ability to change or to, like it gives you the ability to change your behavior. And when you really start to seek connection with the divine and to turn to that source for help I think the help becomes really real and so I think faith allows people to receive support and to see themselves not for who they are in the moment but for their eternal I mean, this sounds kind of dramatic, but like destiny or like identity as, as a being that who, a being who has worth that transcends circumstances. And so I think that's one of the gifts of, of faith is being able to see yourself and others as more than what you see right now. 
Did you ever meet with people who had not necessarily gone to church before, but in this moment were like looking for some kind of religious experience? That's a great question. Yes. Um, however, most of the men who were attending church had practiced before coming to the prison. Um, yeah. Yeah. Curious. And also in like being non-denominational, how did you kind of like, like, how would you, this is a big question, but like, how would you define faith to, in a way that applies, you know, to everybody? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I was thinking about this. I was thinking how we can define faith in a lot of ways, but I, but the, the first thought came, that came to my mind was that faith is understanding that we do not currently know everything that there is to know. Um, faith is believing that there's more truth that we don't currently see or perceive with physical eyes and scientific knowledge. Yeah. And then I, I think how faith, faith is action. Like faith is a principle of action. You don't know the outcome, but you feel that it's worth trying something. Um, so even like right now I'm I'm writing about my experiences as a chaplain. And honestly, I don't know if what I'm writing will ever get published. I don't know what the outcome will be, but I have faith that I'm like doing what is right for me right now, even though I have no idea what the outcome will be. I just have faith that the action is worth it. I should, that's good to remember. <laughs> like thinking about that. In your work as a chaplain, uh, is part of your responsibilities to like, kind of infuse or restore faith in these or is it just to be with them in their moments or is it both that's an excellent question no one's asked me that before <laughs> I think well um first and foremost I try to approach the ministry without an agenda so um we we use this phrase in chaplaincy about meeting people where they are and seeing the individual as whole as, as the individual is without needing to fix, without needing to change. And so I try to discern what the person is seeking and how the person is making meaning of, of his or her experience. And then kind of go from there. So that might, I guess that sounds really vague, but, um, Say, for example, someone comes into my office and like, this is, this is an example of something that happened at the prison. I was, I was about to teach a class and um, an incarcerated man, man approached me before the class started. And he said, I have to talk to you as soon as possible. And first, my first question was, are you, are you okay? Are you, are you at risk? You know, for, I was wondering if he was planning to hurt himself. He said, no, 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 I'm, I'm fine. I just, I need to talk to you soon. And I said, okay, can it wait until after class? And he said, yes. And so after class, he came into my office and I, I just asked him, you know, what, what are you, what would you like to talk about? And then he uh, was talking about his addiction and his behaviors that he, that he's tried to break for many years and hasn't been able to. And so I, I just heard him 
and then started asking questions such as, you know, has anything helped in the past? Do you have a spiritual belief or practice that helps you? And so I'm just trying to get to know where he is spiritually and then brainstorm with him what tools he already has that might help. But then also ask like, you know, is, are there other things you'd like to learn? Are there things you'd like to, to work on? Would you like me to pray with you um, and for you? And he said, yes. And so I prayed for him. But you, I, I as a chaplain really try to let the other person drive our time together. And then of course there, there are times when I'm actively teaching, such as when I'm preaching, when I'm doing a class. Um, but, but the men who are participating come in with the understanding that, that this is a space where that's going to happen. Whereas in individual counseling, um, there's no agreement that I'm like the expert or the teacher. Did that answer your question, Grace? Yeah, yeah it totally did. I, I just was curious, like if part of your role was to, to like, help elevate their faith but I like how you said of meeting them where they're at and helping them use the tools and resources they already have to find you know meaning or faith or hope or whatever it is that they're seeking yeah. and I will like you said it's there's no agenda to it well there are certain situations if you're teaching there is but right right like in my meditation class and that was really cool because that was an interfaith space and I I told people when I advertised the class, I said, this is for everyone. You don't have to have a faith. You don't have to have a religion. Everyone is welcome here. And so we had this really cool interfaith space. But what I told them was at the outset of the class, I said, I want to help you by giving you tools to use that will enhance whatever spiritual practices you might have or just enhance your well-being, even if you don't have a spiritual practice. And so I was teaching breathing exercises and meditations and really encouraging each person in that room to apply those teachings to their spirituality. And so in that way, I think it really could be faith enhancing, but the onus was really on the individual participant. I feel like you've talked about a lot of like positive things, but this sounds like a job that could be really hard. Um, so what are some of the like difficult things that you have to do just so we can give the full picture? Yeah, in, in, in chaplaincy in general or specifically in the prison? Um, both, but we can start with the prison. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very hard to realize the implications of incarceration um that was that was really hard for me um and to think about the social issues that have led to mass incarceration and um the the things that the men in that prison had been through in their life that were just so traumatic i don't think most people wake up one day and say i'm going to kill someone you know i i think in the scope of humanity, there are fewer sociopaths and psychopaths than, you know, that, that like the average person, right? So I think, I think the people whose, whose brains are in a state where they actively want to hurt others, um, I think that percentage is smaller than the people who actively want to help others. And so, um, 
I was constantly thinking about circumstances of the men that I worked with and, you know, just kind of wondering and approaching with curiosity how, how these men ended up where, where they were. And often it was, um, I, I really think it, it links to drugs and abuse and not for everyone, but for many of them, for most of them. And so that was hard, just, just feeling um, that these men had faced so many obstacles to living a healthy, joyful life and, and knowing that for those who leave the prison, because some will and do get out, they're not all serving life sentences, um, just knowing the challenges that they'll face and, and wanting to provide them with tools to help, but also understanding that what I can do is very small. And ultimately you just don't, you don't have control over what people decide to do. And again, I'm not there to fix people, but I had love for that population and do have love for them and didn't want to see them continuing destructive behavior. And so thinking about that and living with that was hard. And then in general, as a, as a chaplain, um, you're exposed to so much secondary trauma and you, you're with people in such extreme circumstances. And usually it's extreme difficult. It's usually not extreme joy. <laughs> Sometimes like maybe you see somebody who's just had a healthy baby and is very happy, but, but it's often in, in people's hardest moments. Mm -hmm. And it can feel heavy. And so you have to take care of yourself. Like I, I have to take care of my body and my mind and my spirit, or I can't keep walking with people and seeing their trauma. So that was going to be my next question. Like, how do you, you know, this is your full-time job. How do you take the time that you have outside of work and sort of decompress and yeah yeah I feel like most of my time outside of work is decompressing <laughs> like I feel like it's all about taking care of myself so that I can go back to work the next day <laughs> and my weekends the same you know and I guess that's so many people in the workforce right you just there's there's a lot that people deal with um but one of the things that's really important for me is comedy. Um, so oftentimes I'll just watch a funny video after work. Um, comedy is amazing. And laughter, laughter is really good for your nervous system. It's really good for your body. Um, <laughs> so I, I try to laugh. Uh, it can be hard. There's a lot of crying, but I try to laugh. I exercise. I spend time in nature. Nature's where I, it's generally where I feel closest to God. So I try to get outside. And at night I have a really important wind down routine that includes journaling and prayer and therapeutic yoga. And I'll do meditations. So those are, those are some things that I, I do. <laughs> I like that you said comedy because 
I love comedy, but I feel like it gets overlooked as like just for fun or, you know, some of those ways people talk about it, but I'm like, no, it's, it's therapeutic, right? It is. It is. It's important. I was recently in touch with, um, I can't, I can't believe it. Matt Meese from Studio C. <laughs> I was so lucky to get an email from him. I, I never met him, but I grew up like, like just watching Studio C videos. And so I just, I love him, even though I don't know him. Um, but I like thanked him and was told him like, you have helped me do my work. And I, I can't remember if I said this, but I thought like he's doing God's work. You know, I don't normally think that of a comedian, right? But, but I think it is important. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, not to make this about me, but I'm going to for just a second. I think it's, it's, I like see someone like you and I'm like, oh my gosh, I am not doing enough. Like I, like every time I like read about what, you know, like I, I also really have strong feelings about prison reform and like our things that are happening. And I think helping people is the best thing you can do. And like, you are doing that one-on-one and I, think it's so amazing and then I'm like here I am just yeah writing comedy or doing marketing or marketing is not any value but um (laughs) but it's like really impactful to hear um that kind of like everything we do all works together like you know we've had lots of different people on this podcast who do lots of different things and it's like um you know, everybody kind of works together. Like if, you know, making somebody who does your job laugh helps you do your job, then maybe it's not as like menial as I think it is sometimes, you know? Absolutely. Um, Because I think- Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no, you go. No, you go. (laughs) I know, I just like, I literally, I, I, I think- maybe obsessively I tell you like you're amazing <laughs> like every time every opportunity I have um because I do think like you know we need so many people helping these people who need help in their vulnerable moments um but I could never go back to chaplaincy school because I hate school you know? <laughs> so it's like I have like my limitations and like sometimes I think I need to be a therapist but I'm like again I would have to go back to school <laughs> I can't do it <laughs> well I think I have a few thoughts. Um, first of all, I don't feel like I'm amazing, you know? And, and so I, I love that you're so kind and say that, you know, um, Lauren, I bet there are plenty of people who look at you and, and including myself, because I was thinking this earlier today, I promise you that you're amazing, you know? And I think, I think we do that, right? We, which is good. We, we look up to each other. Um, but I really believe in this idea of the body of Christ, that none of us is more important than the other. Um, like, I can think of so many analogies about that, but, but I, I do think we all are part of this divine connected um, family of humanity and that we need each other. Like we really do. And and I, I need people who are very different than me. And um, another thought I had, cause you said marketing isn't important. And I actually think it really is <laughs> so, <laughs> because you know, I thought when you said that, I thought, well, 
No, I, I, I discovered uh, this massage tool, the, the Theragun that actually really helps my body. Uh, I'll do that sometimes after a long day of work. And that's because of marketing. Like that's how, so, so products that people invent have a, have an effect and ability to change people's life for the better. So it's just interesting because there's so many uh, important roles in the world. And I, I don't think mine is any more important than anyone else's, but I think the key is that we each uh, fulfill our potential and do what we love. And so what I don't want to see is somebody doing something that they don't like, because I'm thinking you deserve to have a life where you're doing something that you really, really like. <laughs> I'm privileged to have that. That's a privilege that so many people in this world don't have. And that's why we need to pull people out of poverty. But, um, but it's a privilege for me. It's not that I'm so amazing, <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's such a good point too, though. Cause it's like, because you love it, you're good at it, right? Like any job out there, it's like, you can tell when people love something and also you really fought to be where you're at. And I think that that it's like, yeah, we should all do that. We should all fight as hard as we can to be doing the things that we love. Getting super sentimental now, but it's like, it's a really good point. Um, because yeah, it is, it is a great privilege to be in a place where you can do what you love. Now you have me contemplating my whole life. I'm mostly doing what I love, but I'm like, there's some other things. <laughs> And I think a part of that too is supporting others in their efforts to do the things that they love, like, and encouraging them and, you know, creating space for them to, to thrive in those areas as well, rather than forcing them to follow your path or, you know, something that you feel is more important than what they might. Or so I really love this idea that we all are like connected to each other. Yes. Yes. And I think about like the, the heroes of society that we don't even generally think about. Like I always, I think so often about the people who collect my trash and my recycling. I'm like, that is such a hard job. You know, that's a tough, that's a physical job. And it's, you know, sometimes I see um, what's in the garbage and I'm like, oh, you know, I don't want that to spill on somebody, you know, just, just things like that. Like, people are important and people do really hard work. And I'm, I'm so grateful that, um, that people do things that I can't So like, like scientists or mathematicians. I never, my brain doesn't do that. So. Yeah, I agree. Delivery drivers, like there's so many people who I ordered a lot of things from Amazon this week. There's so many people who make our lives easier. Um, Anyway, cut that out. Wait. I don't want people to know how much I bought from Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, and we can cut out my comments too about like the I just no, I, do. I, <laughs> I think going along with that, do you have um any heroes or role models that you look up to? Oh yeah, yeah. The two that I think a lot about as I do ministry are Mother Teresa and Father Greg Boyle. And I I became really emotionally connected to Mother Teresa's story when I read a book of her letters 
and papers that she'd written that she never wanted any other human to read. She wanted them to be burned. And so I feel a little guilty reading them because they were published. But she talks, well, she wrote at length about this longing for God and not feeling God's presence. And just, she had years of asking God, are you there? I don't feel you. And it's heartbreaking to read these letters. And also, I didn't know this until I read her letters. She had to really petition leaders in the Catholic church to do her mission. She didn't just walk out in the streets of Kolkata without permission. Like she, she took a few years for her to be approved by her uh, her leaders and uh, her request even went to the Pope, if I remember correctly. Um, and so she had had this calling. She felt God calling her too and, and struggled with that, struggled with um, men in positions above her who weren't catching on to this vision that God had revealed to her. And so I was reading that and just so moved by her persistence and by her love and her grit and not only pursuing her mission, but like trying to communicate with God and asking like, am I, <laughs> am I really in relationship with you? So she inspires me a lot. And then Father Greg Boyle, he founded Homeboy Industries, which is an organization that works with gang members, former gang members, and seeks to help these men and women get employment and and um, get the resources that they need and there's an amazing documentary about him called g-dog and i watched that before i ever knew i was going to be a prison chaplain but i realized like i needed that before i did prison ministry and i needed his book tattoos on the heart which is about um, some of his interactions with gang members. And those really helped me in the prison. He sounds like such a cool guy. I need to read his book. Yeah, he has a few books, three or four, I believe. Um, and I've, I've got to read the others. <laughs> no, I was just gonna say, I liked what you said about Mother Teresa too. It's like, we always see these, we just get the highlights of these historical figures' lives, right? Or like, popular figures and sometimes we don't see all the struggle yeah 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 and really only God sees that right only God um well I'll speak for myself because I don't want to assume that everybody believes in a God <laughs> um for me I, I think so many of my inward battles um I just have to trust that God is witnessing those because those are battles that that other people just don't see. And that gives me hope that, that there's a being who's witnessing those things. Well, you've given us so much wisdom to think about. Um, but one question we have for everybody at the end of each episode is, what is something that you wish people knew that could have to do with what we've talked about or something completely random? Yeah. Um, I, I wish people knew, and this is going to sound cheesy, but I mean this, I really mean this thing that everybody is essential 
And I think if each of us felt that we would have a lot less suffering in the world. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I want people to feel loved because I believe that everyone is loved. So. Cheesy, but true. <laughs> Good, I think it could change a lot of perspectives. If we could all realize that. Why is it so hard to realize that though? Because we live in a really hard world. There's a lot of anger and there's a lot of suffering. So I think it's just hard to, to see beyond those circumstances, you know? It's just rough. <laughs> I, just wish that that out. <laughs> I just wish there was a pill everyone could take. It's like self-esteem, self-esteem, self-esteem right. for everyone. Right. Well, I've really enjoyed this. This has been very uh, sincere and genuine and authentic. And I've enjoyed hearing about your experiences as a woman and in a field that's not very female populated. And I, I'm so impressed with your work and thank you for sharing. This has been, I've really enjoyed this a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much, Grace. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining us and uh, everyone else. We'll see you next week. Bye.